listeners, this is Charu Sharma from Silicon Valley and you're listening to Drive Your Career. We invite the most impressive humans to chat about finding success and fulfillment in their careers. We are proud to launch our show with a women's special season where our first 10 episodes will feature some extraordinary women. We are so excited to have Sue Stephens with us on Drive Your Career today. Welcome, Sue. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Sue is a sales leader at Facebook, and she is based in Singapore. And I've known her for, gosh, probably six years now uh, from our LinkedIn days. And Sue has been so instrumental at many steps of my career um, as a coach, mentor, friend, role model. And I'm so, so, so thrilled to have her on the show today. Thank you, Sue, for coming. Wow. Thanks for those really, really kind words. Um, We really (laughs) appreciate it. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have somewhat a small part to play in your journey. So pleasure. Oh, you've been amazing. Um, So let's jump right in. And here's my first question for you. So um, you grew up uh, in the Netherlands wanting to be a dancer. And you've had careers in HR, then customer success, and then sales. And despite a few career transitions, you've managed to consistently climb the ladder and you've become this respected uh, leader at a much younger age than most do. So what do you think you did right in your career and what do you think is the secret of your success? Wow, yeah, I I was reflecting on the question and I I mean, I'll start by prefacing it to say that I think that this is obviously one definition of success and I think there's different ways of looking at an individual's success for sure. Um, If I reflect in my journey and what's worked well for me, I think there's been a piece there around following my intuition and focusing on my strengths. I think if I go back in time, I never set out in my career, even from when I wanted to become a dancer, true to where I am now, I don't think I've exactly carved a path to say I would like to become a sales leader in Facebook. I think what's happened is, and I can give you a couple of examples of that, I've gravitated towards a particular project, have really, really enjoyed doing that, and as a result, got noticed. Obviously, the drive was there, and I put the the work in, but I think it was by virtue of focusing on a strength. Now, if we look at what a definition is of a strength, it's something you're really good at that you enjoy doing, meaning it is absolutely effortless whenever you're spending time on it. However, you could be doing something you're really, really good at, but not in a place that allows you to do that. So the third thing I'll talk about is culture. So there was a time in my career that I worked for a Japanese organization, and I worked for them in in Amsterdam. And later on, I moved over to London, two very different organizations, even if they were the same, in fact. Um, when I relocated to London and I, it was my first head of strategy role for talent acquisition, and employer branding, uh, something that I thoroughly enjoyed doing. And I knew there was still a lesson for me to learn there. So I was very courageous in taking that risk because I could see that there was something beautiful that could come out of it. But then when I arrived in the headquarters in London, I didn't feel that I actually fit in in that place meaning that I remember that I'm a very bubbly, typically quite loud person. You can hear me smiling from afar. And all of a sudden, I started dimming all of those things. And it it taught me the value of culture and how important it is that you've got to be somewhere that you feel that you can actually really, really do your best work. So even though I was playing to my strength, because that environment wasn't right for me, I ended up leaving. 
So I bring it back to, to your question, which is I followed my intuition. I really, really zoomed into my strength and I realized the importance of culture. And then, Sue, how did that lead you to a career in customer success and then sales? Yes, absolutely. So I think, so if I take a step back, so I started my career, spent most of it in HR and talent acquisition. So if I think about transferable skills, I would argue that recruiters or talent acquisition is very, very similar to sales. But I'll take a step back. So in the time in, in the Japanese company where I worked and I spent all that time thinking through what are the new ways in which we can start to attract people. One of the big projects that I did was to implement LinkedIn and to start thinking about how can that organization position itself as a company of choice for people to come and work. And at that time, I remember whoever I got in contact with at LinkedIn, I was super impressed with these people. They seemed very happy, very, very chill in how they would rock up and how they were dressed when the opposite was true for me at the time. And I, I was just curious to see what that organization was like. So when LinkedIn approached me, I wasn't quite sure about customer success because it, ha it wasn't something I had heard of before. But what I knew to be true was it was, if you will, transferable skills because I would be able to talk to HR leaders about human capital and how do you go about building winning strategies um, to hire the best people out there. I knew the culture was right and I, I was willing to give it a shot because customer success was so new and it was something that was growing. Um, and ultimately, not to forget, I think I married the right partner for sure because he was so, so supportive when I talked to him about that opportunity. So I ended up uh, taking up the role at LinkedIn. However, that role was a post-revenue generating role. And in my career, I'd only ever been in post-sales roles, meaning that I wasn't accountable for any revenue, but I had a part to play as part of closing a deal or renewing a deal. And what I quite quickly realized in my tenure in customer success is if you really want to have a say and grow your influence, one of the best ways to do that is to carry a quota. And more and more, I could see that the voices were simply not uh, as loud when it came to decisions that were being made. So I decided I really wanted to have a say. Um, I had very clear viewpoints on what I think uh, could have been different. And that the way in which I could go about uh, getting access to that is by, by taking a plunge and really, really jumping to the sales side of things and carry a quota. Um, so that's exactly what I did. That's very insightful. Um, I have a follow-up to that, which is, um, I think career changes, career pivots have now become extremely common. I mean, I would even say it's the norm, not the exception these days. And um, what ends up happening, though, is that people have to take a step back in their career when they switch to a different function or a different industry, um, or, you know, at best, they'll, they'll make a lateral move. You have been so impressive that you've been sort of climbing the ladder or jumping from one branch to the higher branch to the higher branch while changing these functions. Mm. And so how have you managed to do it and how can others learn from it? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's one thing um, we're going to talk about later today as well, and it's the power of mentorship. I've been incredibly lucky in my career to have such amazing mentors who believed in me, in my potential. And it's really through cultivating that relationship that I've been able to be hired for roles where perhaps on a piece of paper, if you were to assess my background, I perhaps didn't qualify. However, by virtue of having that relationship, it meant that the individual had already seen me in action in in some form of capacity, that they had enough comfort to say, I know perhaps you don't bring the right experience right now, but I genuinely believe that you've got what it takes and I'll take a bet on you. So I think the power of mentorship, that's one thing that I would say that has been extremely instrumental in my career. And secondly, building really strong relationships. So if I look at the role I'm in right now, um, I didn't originally, it, it didn't come to me immediately to say, right, I really must go and get a job at Facebook. Not at all. I got to know this incredible woman at Facebook through a public speaking event And we stayed in touch. And through that contact, um, she became my mentor. We spoke regularly. And then at some point, an opportunity came up. Was my profile 100% what they were looking for? No, it wasn't. uh, Because the reality is my background isn't in advertising sales. But again, going back to transferable skills, there was enough there. And I had the relationship that they were willing to have a conversation with me. So I'd say focus on having mentors. I'd say I'd recommend more than one and and really lean into your transferable skills and your relationships, whether that is through conferences, mentoring people and such. That's awesome. That's really great advice. Um, so we talked about a lot of things that you did do right. Now, tell me, Sue, are there some things that you haven't done right in your career? And have you had any mindset changes or any major learnings from those past mistakes? You know, this question, uh, it made me laugh a lot because I was like, oh, wow, where do you want me to start? I think there's so many different things that I could have done very, very differently. But I'll talk about a few. I think in terms of what I definitely didn't do right, and this was early in my career, the notion of working harder, not smarter. And I'll give you a concrete example. This was back in my days when I just started, just out of university, and this was um, in, in an economic downturn. So I was happy to take whatever role I could. And I was a recruiter, and I remember working tirelessly around the clock to fill those requisitions. And left, right, and center, I had colleagues who started to leave, and they were not replaced. So I kept going, working harder and harder and harder. At some point in time, I was the only recruiter left. And by, by virtue of being the only one left, all of a sudden, I was the lead recruiter, the irony. And um, I think whilst there's a lesson to be learned there, but I also think by, by, by the fact of being early in my career, I don't know that could I have approached that much differently um, at the time. But what I learned from it is when I resigned to go somewhere, they ended up replacing me with three people. And when I reflected on that particular scenario as to why did that happen, it made me realize that at no point did I say I wasn't able to do something. At no point did I make a request for additional resources. At no point did I negotiate about timelines to say that wasn't going to be possible. So it taught me something really, really valuable, which is if you don't ask, you generally don't get it. Um, But you've got to ask. Because it's very rare that someone will come and just offer you 
that possibility. So that's like, I think one of the biggest things there was around working really hard, seeking that validation and not working smart at all. Um, in your question, you asked about uh, mindset change. Mm -hmm. So I think what's super, super important is that, and this is where the mindset shift came in for me. I came to realize that it's more important what I think of me than what others think of me. Now, that's not to say I never care what anyone else thinks about me. But I think as leaders and as humans in, in general, it's impossible to please everyone. So you have got to figure out what your core values are and what is worth you getting fired over. And I know for me, what's happened in my career was that at some point I came to realize that I'm definitely a very values-driven individual. And there were going to be things that I simply am not okay with. But if I can look myself in the mirror and I know I am okay with me, with the decision that I take, even though if it meant that I walked away from it, then I could live with myself. And that, I think, was a, a very much a shift in my career as I entered sort of towards the 10 years phase, if you will, versus before kind of just going with it and not amplifying my voice and speaking up and sharing my point of view. That makes a lot of sense. And um, having known you for a few years now, um, I, I definitely, I think I, like one of the first descriptors that come to mind for you is you being a values-driven person. And so um, what are your values and how did you formulate them over the course of your career? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my values, they've never really changed because I, I don't think that I started my career and kind of going, let me think about my values. What are they? I think values in each of us, it starts much earlier on. It really goes back to upbringing. So before I can take you to my values, I've got to go back in time. I was raised by my mom and my grandmother, two incredibly strong women who always talked about the power of being kind to yourself, to one another, the value of education and being hungry and humble to continue learning. And essentially saying, you can go and get whatever you want. You're just going to have to work hard for it and really from time to time make sacrifices to get there. And the, the area I grew up in wasn't necessarily, um, let's say, the best area. So it was definitely a, a modest background. So if I bring it to today, the core values I subscribe to are authenticity, courage, curiosity, freedom, and integrity. So what that means is that piece I just talked about, am I going to be okay with this decision? Did I speak up with the knowledge that I have at the time to represent my point of view or perhaps to speak up on behalf of someone else to really be an ally? Courage. Did I give it a shot? Did I take a calculated risk? Or am I going to look back at the end of my life and say, I wish I had done that, but I'm never going to know. And then the curiosity piece there, that's really always continuing learning. Like I'm the first person in my family to graduate. If there's one thing that I really, really recognize the value of, it's the fact that my mom and my grandmother, both, both women, they, they made sacrifices to ensure that I am where I am in life now. So if there's one thing that continues to be important for me is that curiosity and really learning from people. It doesn't matter where they are in the organization, uh, preferably at different levels in the organization. And freedom. And this is all, always to have a conversation, to have a, a voice, to be able to share my opinion or to really, if you will, to, to, to try and, and 
discuss other points of view. It, there can't be just one way of doing things, is my belief. I love that. Um, so you've also worked in different countries, in Europe as well as in Asia. What have you learned from these international opportunities? And, and also, how did you make these um, international career opportunities happen? Oh, yeah. Well, um, so I, I will say my, my journey in Asia is still quite relevant, relatively new, though I've had experience working for a Japanese company before. So by no means will I say I am an expert uh, working in, in Asia. But if I look at the main thing that I learned, the first thing would be what I think or you think is normal only applies where you came from. Because in that context where everyone is acting, speaking in a certain way, the moment you're removed from that environment and you relocate, you start seeing, hey, why isn't this translating or landing? Because the norm for normal has changed. So that would be, I think, the first heading of how I would preface it. And then I think my single biggest learning in, in this journey of working in an intercultural environment is, uh, let's take silence for an example. So as a Dutch individual, or possibly even within the American culture, it's very much encouraged to speak up whenever mics are open, whether that's at all hands, after presentations and such. This may not be true for all cultures, and it's definitely not true if you look at Asia, where traditionally in the education system, students may have been rewarded for their contribution only when they've been called upon. So I think what I've learned from this is that don't take silence as a lack of input and that the person doesn't have a point of view. And also at the same time, listen for some of the things that are not being said very clearly in a, in a big environment, if you will. There's a really good book that I, I'd recommend uh, called Culture Map. It's by Erin Meyer. And in this book, she explores different things such as communication on, on a spectrum of culture. So if you're a Dutch person like me and you work in a Japanese organization, potentially you're going to have a very challenging time in adjusting your <laughs> communication. And then on a funny note, before I answer your question about how, how I ended up uh, securing the roles, I remember meeting one of the most senior leaders in HR at the time when I worked in a Japanese firm and had very carefully studied customs as to how I should be greeting the individual at the beginning of the meeting, at the end of the meeting. Long story short, I basically kept bowing in a very deep manner, <laughs> which symbolizes respect. And I knew that. But what I didn't know was, at what point do I stop bowing? I genuinely <laughs> didn't know. And I'm so grateful that the incumbent at the time just put an end to it so we could go, go, we could both go back to our workstations. And when I had back to my manager, a British lady at the time, she told me, Sue, you didn't have to do that. You know, he's been in Europe for like over 40 years and his wife is actually British. So the biggest <laughs> lesson there is don't assume, just don't assume that because someone is in from a particular particular culture that things are going to be in a particular way. Just simply ask. That would be my main takeaway. Now, in terms of how I landed the opportunities, going back to something I mentioned earlier around leaning into my strengths, the, the very first opportunity, actually the, the, the first and the second, was very much around running a project. It was going very well. And that I the 
the individuals I was working in HQ asking me, would I not want to have a much larger impact and therefore consider relocating? So that, that's been one of the instances. Another instance was, let's say, more crisis management. What I mean to say by that is there's a team that wasn't necessarily running as smooth as it could. And again, one of the senior leaders at the time who, who asked me, would I, would I be prepared to relocate to Dublin? Now, the irony was at the time, my husband and I were very keen to consider moving to Singapore or possibly Australia or something like that. Uh, but we took a bit of a detour, went to Dublin first before we came to Singapore. Now, Singapore was very different. My husband is an amazing guy. He quit his job twice so we could move for my career. And then this time around, an opportunity came along for him to relocate, which I was, of course, very supportive of. Now, the reality was when that opportunity kicked in for him, I'd only been in Facebook for six months. And at that point in time, you don't qualify for an internal transfer. You've got to be that one-year mark in before you can relocate. So one thing I was clear of is I wanted to remain within Facebook. The journey had just started. And I was going to make it possible, create a possibility or explore a possibility to make a move happen. So the biggest thing there that I learned is to not wait inside of your own head and to enroll and make others part of your plan. Because the moment you say, listen, I am not going to cancel my marriage. My intention is to relocate to Asia. And to be quite frank, this was going to be with or without Facebook and Facebook know that. Everyone was just so involved in wanting to help. So I think with all the opportunities that I've come across, what they had in common is that people knew about me, that I had the ambition to take on a bigger role, that I was keen to explore moving to a different country and culture, but I didn't have a very clear timeline as such. It was just the opportunity came up when it came up. That's excellent. Um, we did a podcast with Nora Denzel. Uh, recently she's on the board of Ericsson and some other pretty big companies and one of her biggest pieces of advice was uh, you're your own PR agent you've got to let other people know what you want Uh, whether it's uh, being ambitious and wanting bigger projects or wanting to work in a different office Uh, but it makes a lot of sense that Uh, People knew what you wanted and you made sure that that happened and then people were willing to help, especially because you had already proven that um, you were a highly valuable team member. And I, I really agree with what she said. Like, you are indeed your best PR agent. And if you can't sell yourself, then the reality is it's, it's very, very infrequent that someone else will do it on your behalf. I fully agree with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so speaking of selling yourself, this brings me to my next question. Um, you know, you, you've seemed to seek out these challenging opportunities and growth by, uh, by changing functions, by, by leading new markets that you had no experience in. And so when you start a new role, Sue, that you don't have experience in or a new market that you're not familiar with, um, do you experience imposter syndrome? And then also then how do you tackle it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like, I I don't think imposter syndrome discriminates. So, yes, absolutely. I, I, I feel it. And there's different stages of it. So um, I'll, I'll go back and I'll tell you a little story because I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. Back in December last year here in Singapore, Michelle Obama was on our Becoming Tour. And I was fortunate enough to be able to attend. And it was fantastic. 
And she had a very, very great perspective on this, which was she also feels it, imposter syndrome. I was like, wow, Michelle Obama also feels imposter syndrome. Just made me feel so connected to her. Um, but <laughs> I, I really agree. It's, there's a piece there which is around prep, prepare, prepare, and prepare as much as you can because it's really in the action. If you're willing to put in the work and you're preparing, whether that's your research or you're in the middle, like now I'm trying to figure out Malaysia as a country and figure out this new country and culture. Firstly, it starts before you take on the new challenge to be very clear on your why. And I think by being clear on your why, that's going to be fuel for when the going gets tough or when the imposter monster comes out and tries to tackle you. If you're clear on your why, you're going to be able to relate it back to why did you believe this was going to be a good thing to get you out of your comfort zone and to push you into that growth stage? I think if you're not clear on your why, it's potentially a little bit more challenging. So here's a couple of concrete things that have worked really well for me um, when I go through mm -hmm. imposter syndrome and particularly where I am now, which is relatively new in role and figuring out yet again a new market. So I've always hired a coach and I've been in communication regularly with them. If you can, this is something I highly recommend. This goes back to the days when I was a dancer, and it's very, very clear that you may one day win the number one spot. But the reality is you've got to keep training and you've got to keep talking to your coach to figure out upon reflection, what can you do differently next time? So nowadays, I perhaps am not a dancer, but let's say if we are corporate athletes, I really, really recommend if you can to hire a coach and be in communication with them regularly. The second thing is I pay attention to my self-talk. Language really, really matters. You can mm. create a whole new world with the language that you use. So whether that is through journaling and figuring out what are some of the pieces that I'm really grateful for in a day, because it, let's face it, it's not that everything's not going right. Where it kicks in is that things are not going in the way you would like them in that particular time frame. And that's when the, the imposter syndrome comes up and says, maybe this wasn't a good idea. Maybe you can't do it. They're going to figure you out. Um, but language really matters. How you talk to yourself and in terms of journaling and reflecting to realize what are some of the things that are going well, that I am good at, that I'm enjoying. Then the third thing that I always try and do is I try and stick to a few things that I know I'm good at and that I really enjoy. Again, that's the definition of a strength. So that means that whilst on one hand, I could be totally out of comfort zone, say um, I was out talking to the Malaysian government, for example, which was a very new thing for me to be doing. But at the same time, I'm speaking on personal branding or I'm mentoring women, which is something a space where I'm really comfortable with. And those two, um, it really means that I can extend myself because there's safety there. Whilst at the, at the other side, there is the out of comfort zone. And then the final piece is find allies and to be vulnerable. I know it sounds really counterintuitive because typically when you're undergoing this sensation of, oh gosh, I don't really know what I'm doing. People are going to be onto me. The reality is you don't want to be exposing yourself. That's kind of your human nature tells you you don't want to be doing that. But the reality is, I do believe that most people can relate to not knowing what to do, being afraid to speak up and just simply needing a bit of help. 
The problem is no one wants to go first. And personally, it's always served me very well to open up and to share what, what's true for me, what I'm dealing with. Again, thinking about language matters and how you phrase that. It's a very different thing of saying, I don't know what I'm doing versus I could use some support with X. So the mm. language really matters. You're saying the same thing, but you're simply phrasing it in a different way. Um, so nowadays I try and lead with vulnerability. By no means am I an expert in Asia, in Malaysia, in ads and what have you, but I try and seek as much input I can from allies. There are always going to be people who've gone before me who do have the knowledge that I'm trying to get. And leading with vulnerability, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown. It takes me back to her book, uh, Daring Greatly. And there's a little quote she has in there, which uh, if you'll bear with me, I'd love to, to share that with the audience. It's a quote by Theodore Roosevelt, and it goes like this. It's not the critic who counts. The credit belongs to the man or woman who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who at worst, if he or she fails, at least fails while daring greatly. So that is his or her wow. place shall never that. be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory or defeat. That for me, and I'm just now I'm getting goosebumps um, uh, quoting this, because for me, what is so beautiful in that quote is, unless you try and you're in that messy middle and the imposter syndrome kicks in, what is the reward you really have to show for that? So yes, it's true. You can remain in that, that comfortable space, but the growth really comes from the more challenging thing. So if I remind myself of this quote, which I do oftentimes when I struggle, I just think, wow, the reward is just so much bigger than the, the messy middle and the struggle. So I wanted to offer that. Wow. I just absolutely love that. Thanks, thanks for sharing that. No pleasure, absolutely. Um, so, see, moving on to the next question, um, you have recently started an executive master's degree at Inseed. Uh, congrats, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. Um, how did you decide to pursue part-time education? And uh, you're a very busy person. I know you make time for mentoring others. You've got a family. I mean, how do you manage this with your workload? Yeah, so it's been quite a journey and I'll take a step back. Like it's been generally um, a journey of a number of years. So I'll take you back to history in order to fast forward in time. So when I graduated and I currently hold a bachelor's degree in human resource management, I always wanted to pursue a master's degree in organizational behavior, organizational psychology, that side of things. The reality is, at the time, I was offered a role so quickly, and I and I thought, well, this is what it was about, right? I finished studying, and I was going to go work. Now, years went by, and I never had the courage to actually go back and consider that master's degree, because I think the, the longer you're in the workforce, potentially, the more challenging it becomes to actually flex those muscles of becoming a, a student again. Now, I'm very lucky, um, as you know, to have a very, very supportive husband, and he essentially challenged me. He said something along the lines of, either I stop talking about one day, someday, getting this degree, for a master's degree in this particular subject, which is organizational behavior, or I just stop talking about it and deciding that it isn't something that I was going to do anymore in life. 
I was like, oh, wow, well, that meant that I was really going to rise to the occasion and investigate it, which was an idea that came to me probably about seven years ago. Now, part-time because I really wanted to be able to have the opportunity to bring it into my day-to-day at work and bring it into life. So it's not just theory. It's something that I'm actually uh, learning and growing as a leader and those around me on a daily basis. Um, so that I was very clear that I wasn't going to take time out and become a full-time student. Now, I, I, I think I shared this earlier. I'm the first in my family to graduate and getting this degree would mean I would be, I would have the highest level of education for sure in, in the family. So that's another piece which goes beyond. It isn't just the degree or the subject. There's a much deeper cause and reason as to why I want to go do it. Now, your question around how do I manage the, the time that's associated to this? So again, I realized that there's a piece there around sacrifice. It's an 18-month degree, uh, meaning that, yes, I am going to be socializing a bit less. Um, I think the process of going through admissions, which is a lot of work, I can tell you, was really good practice. I woke up every day at 5.30 and I spent at least an hour, an hour and a half writing, which meant I didn't have to spend that time at the weekend. So I could play around with, am I going to do it every day before work an hour or do I potentially want to shift it across and do it at the weekend? I think both are possible. But going back to your question, I think it's important to be clear as to why you want to do these things, because the reality is there is going to be a peak moment where I will question the decision I made to be in a very high performing, demanding environment, as well as to be studying at this amazing business school. Now, then if I then go back to my why and the, the fact that this is much bigger than just me, that this has the potential of changing the trajectory of the legacy I'll leave in the line of my family, that for me means that 18 months is such a short amount of time to be able to put in the hard work and to make that sacrifice. Um, Now, it's only a very, very early journey. And I know by doing all the research for years, I know exactly which of the modules require a peak, which means planning, 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 planning. I can really plan ahead um, to try and avoid where possible as much stress as I can. But I'm not going to deny it because I think it would be very naive of me to sit here and say there's not going to be crunch time. There is going to be crunch time. But I think ultimately that also that is also the beauty of being able to explore a new subject and, and grow going back to core value of curiosity. I absolutely love that. Um it's so clear that you make decisions that seem right for you, your values, what you stand for, the life that really makes sense for you, as opposed to um, what's normal or what people think one should be doing. So I just, I absolutely admire that you're truly driving your career and your life. So that's really commendable. Thank you. Um, So you've also often said to me, um, that you manage your energy and not just your time. Can you, can you tell us more about that? Wow. I feel like this could be an episode of itself, but no, absolutely. <laughs> this, is a, this is an area, as you know, I'm really, really, really passionate about. But I'll, I'll take a step back to explain why that is. So where this stems from, and, and you know I talked about earlier, working hard. 
So a couple of years ago, I felt extremely run down and I just thought to myself, there's got to be a different way of integrating work and life that doesn't leave you feeling burned out. And at the weekend, all you could do is kind of sit in front of Netflix and kind of zone out. And I remember there was a moment which I was I was presenting. There was a QBR and I had a very high fever. I remember there was like sweat running down my back and there I was standing doing that presentation. And I thought to myself, I will just never choose to do something like this before because by virtue of me getting to where I am at that point in time meant that I hadn't looked after myself well enough and I hadn't prioritized in a way that made sense to say, no, I'm going to be unavailable because I'm really ill. Um, And at the time, that leader who could clearly see I was unwell, he actually talked to me about energy management and shared some materials afterwards, which I dove into. Um, So in Harvard Business Review, if for those of you who want to read up on it, you can find this uh, um, article, which is how to manage your energy, not your time. So the four levels of energy and the concept is there's nothing you can do to get more time. You have the same amount of time while you may be on the other side of the world. You'll have the exact same amount of hours, days, minutes compared to myself here in Asia. However, there's things you can do that give you more energy. And when you do that, that is how you possibly shortcut on time. So here's the four aspects. First one is physical energy. Second one, emotional energy. Third one, mental energy. And the fourth one, spiritual energy. Physical energy is, if you were to look at it as a pyramid, first sleep, which is absolutely basic and foundational to make sure you can comprehend what's going on in your day and you have enough energy to power through. Then there's a piece around nutrition and exercise. That's kind of your basic in the if it is a pyramid. Secondly, emotional energy. Are you spending time doing the things you enjoy? Are you a fun person? Are you fun to be around? Um, uh, hobbies, things you enjoy, but also your your self-talk. How is that going? Mental is everything to do with with planning, being able to focus, uh, perhaps that piece around meditation so you can clear your mind. But for me personally, I do a lot of lists and planning ahead. If it's not in my calendar, it's never going to happen. So there needs Mm -hmm. to be a list to say it needs to go onto my calendar and then it makes it into my calendar. Then it's there. It's going to happen. If it's not there, it's never going to happen because your mind is to store beautiful ideas to brainstorm, but not to remember everything you have to do until the end of the day. It really isn't. And then the final piece, which possibly is the most difficult one, which is spiritual energy. Are you living life in line with your core values, things that are important to you? Is there a cause that is much bigger than yourself? It's not just for the job title, the money, and what have you. Some find this in religion. Others find it in charity work. And others find it simply in living through their core values with their family. So for me, energy management is... At any point in time, if this is a a seesaw, imagine on one side is work and the other side is everything else. If if I'm having a particularly challenging week that is really full on, what am I doing to load the other side of my seesaw pertaining to energy management? Because the way in which athletes sustain extreme peak performance is that after they go and they've done all the preparation for whatever it is they need to do, they always take time to rest. 
And that is no different for corporate athletes, if you will. So I think about energy management because we all have the same amount of time. I think about the seesaw, which is, yeah, sure enough, it's never perfect. But if I have a really intense week, what am I doing to load the seesaw on the other side to ensure that I can really integrate work and life in a way that feels healthy to me? Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like um, practice makes perfect. So like anything else, the more we practice it, the more aligned we are and and the better we can manage our energy and the more aware we get yeah and then on that thing what i think is also important is like i don't think it's realistic say you take one of these scores online and it's like the optimum score is five or whatever just saying for me what i think is realistic in modern day society is that you allow yourself a threshold so say i was relocating to singapore Naturally, that's going to be a time that is more anxious, more uncertainty, newer things. So I'm totally cool in that space of time to perhaps not be in the greatest place from an energy management standpoint, because the situation I'm in is kind of very new. Um, so I, I don't think it's around um, like the perfection side of things, but it's rather to know what is true for you at that point of time and what is the threshold you're allowing yourself at any point in time and constantly on a weekly basis reviewing what am I loading my seesaw with to ensure that I keep trying to find that right level of integration. I go for integration, not necessarily balance, because balance means it assumes that two things are equal, if you will. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's simply not true that the two are equal. I spend way more time at work than I do outside of work. <laughs> That's true. Um, so still changing gears a little bit, uh, and I have just a couple more questions for you. Um, has being a woman and a racial minority ever affected your career? So I think this is the question I've had to think about the most because I'm sure that it has, but I may not always have been very, very conscious to it. So my background is I was born on an island in the Caribbean. It's the island of Curaçao, which at the time was part of a Dutch, uh, the Dutch kingdom. So if we look at it from different systems of oppression, what we know to be true is that the notion of colonialism, it assumes you're here by grace of another. So how I can subscribe to this is to know that I would have had instances where perhaps I didn't think my voice mattered as much because I would have been in a room where no one looks like me. The analogy I often use is imagine porridge and there's raisins in it. That's kind of been the majority of my career. So I guess in, in that instance, I would have struggled to find my voice or to feel validated that I should be speaking up because it did matter. And it's only later in my career that I've come to realize that it became super important that I actually shared my point of view because others did not have that lived experience. Now, what I will say is that in my household, the narrative was never around you're black, you're female, and you're young, therefore you're going to have to work harder. The, the narrative was very much around if you're going to want something in life and be successful at it, you've got to make the sacrifices, work hard, and be kind to others. So I think that is something, being subscribed to that narrative, that's why I say that whilst I'm sure it must have been a part, I wouldn't have always been present to it. Also, I am at the same time not naive to know that for sure there's been moments where I've been selected because it would have helped the diversity of a poster. 
I know that, that there's been instances where that is the case or that someone might have said to me, but Sue, uh, you're lighter skinned even though you're black. Therefore, the chances are much greater that you're going to succeed, which was a very, very difficult thing for me to hear. Um, but I know that these are things that happens. And I also know that in my journey, it's probably affected me le- less in comparison to some of the stories that I know about women of color, some of which, uh, some of whom I mentor directly. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, because uh, in our conversations in the past, I've never seen you sort of um, feel like a victim because of your race or gender. Um, so that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so my last question to you, Sue, is um, I know that you invest so much time in mentoring others. Um, I have been one of the beneficiaries. And um, I'm curious, what's the best advice that you have ever received from a mentor? Yeah, so um, one of them is have as many mentors as you can have for different things. Um, But one of the two things that came to my mind that I still think of very often, the first one is, You can do anything you want, just not at the same time. And the discussion here was very much around my husband and I, at some point, we'd love to have a family. Um, We wanted to relocate to all these different countries. And and I wanted to pursue that degree at some point in time. And as I was trying to think through, how am I going to make all these things a reality? The advice I was given was, you can do anything you want, just not at the same time, which means you kind of need to look ahead in your life and in your career and figure out what are some of the key things that you want to accomplish and then work backwards to say, how am I going to make that happen? So if I take a couple of examples in my life personally is, I'd hope to become a mom if I'm lucky enough at some point in time. I definitely want to get that degree, which I'm working on, and we wanted to have a stint in Asia, which is where we are right now. However, these things have not happened all at the same time. We've had to really thoughtfully carve time and space out to say, it might probably make more sense to say, hey, we're going to relocate to Asia first. I'm spending time on the degree now. And then following on from that, we can start thinking um, about um, family expansion. So I think that was very, very valuable um, input. Then the second one is work is a bouncy ball. So this was a mentor and I loved hearing this story. What they shared with me was they were going to their um, reunion of their MBA. And the first couple of years, it was very much around what, who's got the VP title, how much money they were making. That was kind of five years into it. 10 years into it, gradually the conversation started changing. So much so that by the time they got to 15, 20 years into meeting each other again at the reunion, the conversations were very much around, have you got a good divorce lawyer? Do you know a good doctor? Because I'm in severe pain for my back. The point being here, always keep your eye out on what is truly important in life And work being a bouncy ball, meaning that if you so choose to drop it at any point in time, it's going to bounce right back up. Wherever, if you choose to neglect things like your health, your family, or whatever it is that falls in a category that is of importance to you, imagine that being a glass ball, extremely fragile, that if that was to drop, 
it doesn't bounce back up in the way that work or professional success does. So those are two things that I always remind myself of. I'm a very uh, visual individual, so I can see that bouncy ball popping up and down whenever I'm thinking, oh, what is the right decision to take here? That makes a lot of sense. I think especially earlier in our career, uh, when um, unless we've had a non-traditional career, generally we're younger and in our 20s, and we feel very invincible when it comes to physical health, mental health, relationships we take for granted. So that's a very good reminder that life is long. And I, I really, really like your first advice too around uh, it's okay to want different things and it's okay if they seem in conflict, but you can have different things at different times. So I really like that. Thank you. I hope it's been valuable. These are just some of the nuggets that I've picked up along the way um, that have been very, very um, useful and served me well. Thank you, Sylvie. We're so grateful that you made time for this despite your um, executive degree and the busy Facebook job and your family amidst all the coronavirus chaos. So um, thank you for spending this time with us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure and I'm really, really excited um, to hear what you're going to be up to next. Thank you listeners for joining us today. If you liked this episode, don't forget to share with your friends and subscribe to Drive Your Career wherever you get your podcast. Have a great day and I'll talk to you next week.